Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to part two of our spoiler special review of Sunderland Till I Die Season 2. Once again, I'm your host, Craig, and I have Gav joining me to relive the three final episodes of Fullwell 73's documentary. Gav, we mentioned in part one that we've watched this back multiple times now, and this last part is arguably the most difficult episode to get through of the entire two seasons. Yeah, just thoroughly dis- depressing, so, really. So, in terms of what we're going <laughs> to recap today, we've got episode four, which is basically, it's it's a mess. It's an absolute car crash of an episode. And it is entirely about the transfer saga of Will Gregg coming. Episode 5 is dedicated to the Checker Trade Trophy run. And episode 6 gets even worse because we're then going to take you back through another Wembley defeat with the playoff final. So, let's dig in. Episode 4 begins uh, in Bordeaux, of all places, as we finally get the conclusion of the Josh Madger saga as he completes his move. You'll see a playover uh, of Stuart Donald mentioning, basically, people told him it would end that way. Jack Ross calls him and, you know, he's irate. He tells him that Josh Madger's come in, he's picked up his stuff, he said he's gone, and that you could have told me you accepted the offer. Uh, Stuart replies saying that he hadn't accepted anything and that he haggled to get the best price that he could and we've ended up with one and a half million euros. He describes it as not a great deal, but it's the very best that we could get. So we'll just touch on this very lightly, Gav. Yeah. Realistically speaking, I mean, it sounds like he's being tapped up. It sounds like this has been lined up for a while. Do you think Stuart Donald could have done anything better on this? I think we still were in a situation where we didn't have to sell Madger. It was just convenient to sell him. So obviously, the one big deal left out of the documentary was that in selling Madger to Bordeaux, we basically paid off the remaining legacy payment that we owed Bordeaux for Kazri when we yeah. signed him in the January 2017 window or 2016 16, Sorry, was that long yeah. yeah so we still owed a, a chunk of money on Kazri and, and it basically all went to paying that off so we basically gave him away um, yeah the, and the expectancy is from watching this back now it is surely going to anger a lot of fans I remember when we've watched this back on Sky Sports News and, and all other uh, major kind of broadcasters that said we were looking at a fee somewhere close to 3 million and if you think if you get to January and you've got a player that's going to be out of contract his contribution over the first half of the season had been so good yeah, we know he's raised his profile so much. It was always going to be challenging to keep a hold of him. But, you know, when you find out that not only have we received an absolute pittance, but none of it's actually gone back into the club, it's it's paying off a legacy debt. 
I mean, Stuart described in an earlier episode that it would leave them looking like a bunch of numpties. And, you know, I really do think that fits the part. Um, it is yeah. desperately disappointing to find out the true circumstances of that deal. To me, it feels as though from the, the especially the footage you see of Stuart's meetings with Richard Hill, that kind of the people around Stuart put pressure on him to sell Madger. Yeah. I think at the time, there was certainly a feeling around the club that the club weren't going to be pushovers for agents anymore. Mm-hmm. And th- that was definitely the case when dealing with Madger's agent. They just didn't. They didn't want to deal with him. The agent in this case made it very difficult for Sunderland to hold on to Madger, but they still could have held on to him. Yeah. I mean, considering what we know the money went towards, which was it was of no value to the club, to re- really other than to pay off a debt, promotion would have meant a lot more to us and, and we would have you know, definitely got promoted with Josh Madger up front. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think I don't think we did enough to hold on to him really, and maybe people got in Stuart's ears. as you do see in the footage in the in the series. So the narrative of the documentary, the tone really does shift back to you know kind of like a, a whole anxiety, if you like, back over the club. Then you see a recording of Aidan McGeady, who you know, he famously berated Chris Coleman on season one, but he's talking about how the fans are excited over the prospect of promotion and the need to sign a few players to fill the void. So. You can see perhaps that there was doubts in January from the squad whether we were going to have you know the required tools, if you like, to get us back over the line. And then this is where it just completely goes into full transfer mores. The mm. first involvement of Neil Fox in this particular episode is he sat in the bridal insurance offices back in Oxford and he sat watching a compilation video on YouTube of a lot of fans singing Will Griggs on Fire. And for me, that kind of set the tone because we always have this laugh carrying on in terms of whatever players you sign people will always dart to YouTube and they'll say, oh, have you seen what he can do, this, that and the other? And this here, I thought, Jesus Christ, you know, he was getting quite enthusiastic about this and I was just thinking, this is really kind of small time and it it really did kind of show the desperation, especially whilst Donald is in the midst of a striker search. He's frequently shown on the phone. All of his bids are getting knocked back wherever he's going. He discusses with Tony Corton, with an unnamed player at this stage that was matched and offered twice. Um, and a club has now came back to them and said they don't have the authority to accept the offer, so give us another offer. We'll find out that we put a bid in for John Marquis for £1.5 million. Doncaster came back and told us £10 million. So, I mean, obviously we were miles apart on that one, but I found it interesting that Doncaster could play you know, such hardball with that one. When the shoe was on the other foot, we caved in quite easily. So, yeah. I would say at least I fair think, play to Doncaster for doing so. Yeah, I think it was clearly just a case of they didn't want to sell him because mm-hmm. they knew they knew that they had a chance of getting promoted through the playoffs and obviously they did, they made the playoffs. But um, I think that way of thinking with Sunderland last season cost us a couple of times. And yeah. We definitely should have, like I said before, we definitely could have played hardball with Madger and kept him here. I mean, I don't think any fan would have begrudged him leaving in the summer for nothing had we got promoted. And obviously, as we're going to go on to discuss... When you see the way that we kind of throw money at Simon Will Grigg, it doesn't make any sense, really. You know, you had a player there who was in the team scoring goals, fit the system. The manager liked them. He liked the manager. Obviously, there's a lot of talk in the early episodes about how Madger and Ross get on really well. So to then whinge about the player's agent and how much he wants and how he won't deal with them, and then to go on and panic, basically, in signing a player who is a risk, really, because hadn't been playing for his other club, it just seems mental and shows maybe how how small time and I guess not suited to Sunderland. Yeah. The people making the decisions were and are. So back to deadline day, uh, we pretty much remain in the bridal insurance offices throughout the, the course of this episode. Stuart Donald back 
on the line again. He tells us that he's going to put in an offer in a second. Can we just talk to the guy? Now, the fee mentioned at that stage is 1.25. He tells Tony Corton that the fee they were initially quoted was 1 million and that they can take it or leave it when it comes to this higher offer and that basically we're not going to be doing any more. Tensions rise because obviously it hasn't materialised. And then a very, very interesting kind of event unfolds where Jack Ross comes on the phone. So Stuart Donald basically rings him up and he, he checks with Jack Ross to see how badly he wants to sign Will Grigg. Now, this is not verbatim, but this is what I've got noted down. Jack Ross says, to be honest, Stuart, I know this is probably not the ideal way to look at it, but to see the offer that you've put in, he's not worth any more than that. Not a chance. If you're getting him for that money, it's a good offer, then fine, but not the figures that they're talking about. It's just mental. I just wouldn't do it. He's not worth it. And then subsequently, our £1.25 million bid is then rejected. So it flashes on. Stewart's pacing from left, right and centre. He's still getting absolutely nowhere. And then he tells us that he's going to have one more dive in. And at this point, this is where Richard Hill, um, the self-proclaimed saviour of the football club, basically tells us that it's getting a bit silly and we're looking like we're going to be paying over the odds. Stuart Donald tells him to up the offer. And he's back on the phone with Tony Corton, expressing how desperately that would need him. It then comes back to Stuart, where people are telling him, look, it's your, it's your money, but it's just not the right thing to do. And you fall into the trap of the January transfer windows. And now at this stage, he basically phones Tony Corton again. He tells him he's got one last, last shot at signing Will Grigg, but he proposes to offer. I mean, from what I gather, it looks like in installments, but we're told that the deal totals three million and could eventually rise to four. And then basically the bid is then accepted. We'll find out it was the sixth one that Sunland had submitted. And then it's the race against time to get the paperwork sorted. And we know at that stage, as we're told, Will Grigg was in bed back in the Northwest. I think he had the impression that he wasn't going to be moving, that Wigan weren't going to sell. And that in the end, the money just got ridiculous and they had absolutely no option. So the deal eventually gets sorted out. You know, Richard Hill expresses his frustration in terms of some of the figures that have been banded about. And then once all said and done, Stuart Donald eventually jokes that he now doesn't have enough money to pay the pizza delivery man who's en route. And now he's going to resign as chairman because he quite simply can't fucking do this again. An absolute mental series of events, how it all unfolds, especially in such a short time. We've spoke with Stuart in the past who said it was going to be interesting to watch it all unfold because Netflix were there for the entire day. How do you think this is going to make him come across? Out of his depth. I think that was that first and foremost. He just seemed out of his depth and desperate. And maybe one thing that was missing from the documentary that could have showed was that throughout January that year, Stuart promised the fans multiple occasions on Twitter that he was going to sign a striker, that we were yeah. close to signing a striker. He put the pressure all on himself by doing that. And I think that was definitely playing on his mind. He was still on Twitter the night of the of the signing and he'll have no doubt seen all the messages flooding in about sign a player sign Greg um, I just think I think he, he dug himself a hole and the way he comes across is a very desperate and maybe naive mm-hmm. man who done what he did to to better the club definitely I mean he didn't he, he knew we needed a striker we all did but he perhaps acted as a fan rather than as an official, which he, yeah. of all the times Richard Hill appears on camera in this documentary, that's the one time I actually agree with him when he's telling Stuart just to pack in, no no more, because what we should have done was really just just look elsewhere. Because for, for the money we paid for Greg, you could have got a far better player, I think. Absolutely. Um, you would have got Marcus. I, I think you would have got John Marcus, who would, we obviously know 
from the documentary that we were would, would made bids from. So yeah, I think he comes across very desperate and naive, and he's that's probably the turning point in Stuart's tenure is how how he handled January in making a rod for his own back by telling people he wasn't going to deal with stubborn agents. And he on the podcast he did with us in particular spoke very negatively of the of his experiences with the agents to the point where it was clear he wasn't going to deal with anybody being difficult. And I think sometimes you've just got to give a little, haven't you? And he should have held on to my journey. He wouldn't have had this this whole scenario unfold where he basically signed a player who, all right, we all know Sunderland fan was disappointed when we signed Grigg. No. But in hindsight, when you look at it and you consider he wasn't playing for Wigan, he was out of favour, he was out of sorts, he wasn't even particularly keen to move, I don't think. I don't even believe to this day that he's actually properly set up home in the northeast. I think he commutes. Yeah. And um, back to his family and stuff. It's like I don't know. Did 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 we re, did we even speak to Greg? Did we did we are uh, you know how much re, how much digging did we do on him to see whether he was the right type of signing? It was just very short termist and because we know how it's all played out, it's difficult to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. Well earlier this afternoon uh, I had the pleasure of speaking very, very briefly with Sky Sports presenter and Sunderland fan Tom White about what it was like in the Sky Sports studio that evening as events unfolded. Um, so basically, Tom recaps his experiences as he was joined in the studio with Sam Allardyce, Hayley McQueen, and obviously Mr. Deadline Day himself, Jim White. So I must forewarn um, that we are without studio access. And Tom did very kindly spare us a few minutes of his time before heading back into work. So the audio, it's not great. Um, it has been done over a mobile, so unfortunately, it's not to our usual standards. But uh, yeah, so here's my substandard, sloppy interview with Tom White. Tom, welcome to our spoiler special review of Sunderland Till I Die Season 2. We're up to Episode 4, where you do make a very brief appearance. It's stock footage from the night of Deadline Day, where you take us through failed bid after failed bid before we finally succeed at the sixth attempt. We certainly get caught up in the hype to do something dramatic, didn't we? I remember it very well. I remember being on. Um, uh, these days, you kind of have three people doing up until the deadline on Sky Sports News. So it's obviously Jim White plus two others. The two others change on that night. It was Jim and uh, Hayley McQueen and me. Um, and I was kind of, they, they were kind of on set. I was mopping up all the other stuff, which of course includes EFL. And I remember all day thinking like, it's going to make today good is if we signed Will Grigg that's who we really wanted um, that was what eventually happened and you're right let's be honest we were all delighted about it so for that evening itself what was that like for you as a fan because you know whilst this is all playing out in the background you've got to have that air of professionalism about you you know was was this something that you continuously had on the mind because it, it just did not look like it was going to happen did it after so many failed bids and you know, we just kept knocking on the door saying, right, we'll come back with more money. I mean, we were all panicking somewhat, but um, what was it like for you in the studio? Um, the noises that we were getting was that we were going to sign a striker, right? And I don't know, I mean, the, the amount of rumours out there about who we were actually making last minute bids for, I don't know who were. I remember there were some players um, who were suddenly linked with out of nowhere and players that I knew, and I'd asked them and they were like, well, that's news to me. So I don't know whether we really were going for uh, you know every striker that would be potentially available or not on deadline day, or whether we were actually just going for Will Grigg. But that's the one that I did want, because I thought, well, he's going to guarantee goals in League One. That's what we need, because matches is going. So I mean, in terms of being professional, though, deadline day, 
you can, you can let yourself go a little bit there because it's, you know, you're all having fun. It was obvious when I announced the transfer on Sky Sports News that I was excited about it. Because all you're doing there is showing the way the Sunderland fans are feeling about it. Well, I think it, it, it's deadline day, and if your it, whether it's your club or someone else's, if a signing goes through that is exciting, that actually is every every support of every club can sort of uh, sympathise with that, and they understand what you're going through. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, you were certainly in great company that evening, and let's be fair, Jim White, he's pretty much seen it all for transfer deadlines. I still assume he, he might have had a little bit of shock, perhaps, when our persistence had finally paid off, because most of the bids that we were doing, or at least if you see similar clubs going at it for players, they just eventually get to a point and cave in and just think, that's it, we'll, we'll maybe look at targets elsewhere or, or just concede defeat. But was there any surprise when the fee was mentioned for just how much we were prepared to pay, breaking the League One record? Yeah, well, it is a great company, by the way. The other person who was in the studio all night there was Sam Allardyce, so I absolutely loved it because I, I love him. absolutely love Sam Allardyce, even well before he managed Sunderland. When he got the Newcastle job, I honestly thought he was going to be the first Englishman to win the Premier League. I'm very, very glad that their fans hounded him out because <laughs> I think that's how good he would have been. Um, but, yeah, the, the fee, that's the thing. I must admit, we all wanted to sign him. I know it hasn't worked out yet. It might still, but it hasn't worked out yet for Will Grigg. The fee was the one thing that was a little bit like, oh, how on earth? Where have we found three million, potentially four from? That worried me a little bit. But putting a positive spin on it, I thought at the time, right, well, actually, maybe we've really sorted out our finances and we've actually in really good shape financially. Maybe our owners have got a lot more money than people think they've got. And I thought, actually... This could potentially make it even more exciting. But that was, I had to really try to put that positive spin on it. I just couldn't understand why we would spend that much on one player when really in League One, you very rarely even pay a transfer fee. And if you do pay a transfer fee, nothing like three million rising to four. That was the one worry. But I, I did find a positive to put on it. Absolutely. I mean, the documentary is still yet to be released by the time the podcast goes out. Um, we'll hope that people will at least have seen some of the footage. Do you think that now there's perhaps an element of other clubs looking at our desperation that night and thinking, you know, Sunderland can find money in the reserves from absolutely nowhere? So would you predict perhaps when football goes back to normal and, you know, we go back through the transfer windows that people might look at that and think, right, we're going to fleece these for as much as we can? Well, no, because two reasons. One, because, well, we don't think we're going to, by the next transfer deadline, we don't think we're going to have the same onus. You know, if the, if the club is for sale, which, well, I think the club is for sale. Yeah. If, if it does get taken over, it'll be, be completely different. And the current owners, if, if Stuart Donald, for instance, is still in charge, he's not going to make that mistake again. And as he's wanting to sell the club, he's not going to splash out a lot of money anyway, because just like he did in, in, the, in January, because what's the point if you're trying to sell the club? So I, I don't, I wouldn't worry about that, to be honest. If, if Stuart Donald was really bullish and saying, saying, yeah, I don't mind, I, I'd do the same again. Uh, I, I, the club's not for sale. That Will Grigg deal, that was a good deal and I would do it again. Then we might need to be worried but on deadline days and years to come. But at the moment, nothing to worry about. Absolutely. Well, Tom, just before I do finally let you go, you did allude to the fact that the Will Grigg deal perhaps hasn't panned out or played out the way that we all hoped for. When the season hopefully does resume, 
do you think he still has a chance to resurrect his Sunderland career? He's, he's had a few minutes under Phil Parkinson. Do you think there's still that opportunity that he might carve out something and, and make his time successful? There is. Um, he's, he's been back on the bench and such like. I know that that's um, because Blake has been um, has had a little injury apparently. Um, but if he is on the bench and does come on even with ten minutes to go and scores, then he does it again the next week. Then maybe he'll start, and we might see the Will Grigg that we know he can be because we know he can score goals, especially in League One. But I think it would be more a little bit like. It would be, it'd be more of a look. He'd have to come on. He'd have to come on, get a chance in that 10 minutes or five minutes. I mean, against Bristol Rovers, I think you only got about two. Um, and we, we need a little bit of luck in the way that Conor Wickham did. Gus Poyet thought, well, our strikers aren't scoring. Fletcher's not scoring. Otterdor's not scoring. I'll bring Conor Wickham back on loan. Uh, from, from loan at Sheffield Wednesday and just throw him in because nothing else is working. It worked and we stayed up. It would be that kind of, uh, that kind of look that would do that with Will Grigg. But we'll not write him off yet, but it hasn't worked yet. Brilliant. Well, thanks, Tom, very much um, for your thoughts on the Will Grigg saga and how it all unfolded. Always a pleasure. Right. Okay. so that was Tom White. So we will continue with the rest of episode four now. And it's back to the stadium light and the focus is very, very much on Will Grigg. Um, A series of interviews where he meets with Keith Downey at pitch side. He says he's not worried about the pressure. The bigger the club, the bigger the crowd and the bigger the games that he seems to thrive on it. He describes it as a massive opportunity and that he's really proud to be at the club. He actually goes on to target 10 goals in 16 games. Now, like I said, obviously, we know how it unfolds. So it's hideous to kind of watch this back. But nevertheless, at least he's come in and he set himself a target. But uh, yeah, so we'll move on swiftly with that. Um, Back to Stewart. He then tells us that he's took a judgment call with Will Gregg. His proven goal-scoring record might just be the difference, and it's difficult to put a price on that. Again, we can cast the argument back about the whole just retain Josh Madger situation, but better the devil you know. It's the Oxford United game where Will Grigg makes his debut, and the Blackpool game where he has the famous effort of rounding the goalkeeper and hitting the side netting on an open goal, and the pressure was really heaped on him from the start, wasn't it? If you think he, he desperately had to hit the ground running and as you've mentioned, you know, he wasn't match fit. Do you think that the expectancy and the demands was perhaps greater than he than he imagined when he first came in? 100%. He'd never played for a big club before and he doesn't strike us as the type of character who thrives on being at a big club. I know he said he, I mean, talks cheap, isn't it? But Greg, the biggest stage Griggs had really was playing for Northern Ireland at the Euros and he didn't do anything, I don't think. Aside from that, he's had a couple of good outings in the Cup for Wigan. You know, against like some Man City and stuff, and I think when he was at MK Dons, he he scored a couple of goals against a Premier League team. But generally speaking, Sunderland's a different kind of fish. You, I, I said this on the on the episode yesterday, but to thrive at Sunderland, you've got to have a big character. You've got to be yeah. a big personality and maybe a little bit crazy. And then you just don't get that impression with Greg. I think if you look at his track record, he's never played for big clubs. He's you know Wigan, Brentford, MK Dons. It's not like a a stellar list of of clubs that he's had and I think that's pretty much it he came into Sunderland alright by you know overall standards not a massive money signing but for League One definitely I mean we've brought the record to bring him here biggest club in League One mm-hmm. biggest expectations filling the boots of a striker who I think Magi had got 16 goals before he left Yeah, just 
all the pressure on Greg to hit the ground running and he w- simply wasn't prepared and I don't believe that he really had had the mentality to be able to grasp the opportunity in the way he needed to and that's why like you say the footage the show of him going through a thrown goal against Blackpool and hitting side netting I think from that moment I just knew it was doomed and that's kind of the narrative of the pain in the show yeah it's just like everything seemed to go wrong for Will Greg from the off even obviously there's a the footage of him scoring a penalty, but even then, you, I, I know, I know what, I know in hindsight what 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 happened. Of course, he scored it, but watching it back, you're kind of like sitting waiting for him to miss it. This is the way <laughs> the way they've painted the picture. Yeah, I was going to say I was I was on edge at the stadium like that uh, that night during that game, and I know there was a nice little exchange with McGeady and Greg after they won the penalty, and McGeady hands them the ball, but yeah, I think you could have probably heard a pin drop when he stood up um, before taking that penalty. And it was, it was quite nice kind of reliving that back because it's usually his biggest criticism that he never celebrates, but you could just see that everyone was desperate for him to do well and everybody is, you know, surrounding him and there's, there's pats on the back. So it was, um, it was at least nice to see something celebratory from his time because this particular documentary doesn't really paint his, his time at Sunderland in, in a very good light. And the reality is that it, that it hasn't been um, whether that will change, who knows? Um, but we then make another appearance. So Rocker Report podcast then comes in again. This time it's actually Graham in the chair, as Connor has obviously moved on to work for the football club at this stage. Now I'll be honest, I wasn't overly thrilled with the editing here. We spoke on the last uh, podcast we've done of episodes one to three about how the editing sometimes can suit a narrative. But this podcast, from what I recall, was actually from the end of the season. It was it was the day after, or at least two days after the playoff final game where tensions were running high. Um, Will Grigg had evidently not been a success in his time with us. But the editing here suggests that Graham is pretty much spitting his dummy out after two games, after the, the Oxford game and the Blackpool game. And it doesn't reflect him in the very best of light. I don't think it makes him look quite petulant because he's questioning about the style of football and where perhaps we can attribute the blame. Um, but he's then cut short by Charlie, who tells him to stop making micro man in the pub analysis because we've got so many interesting questions where he and Stewart can add value. And I just wanted to ask your thoughts on that. Do you think that again was was adding to the narrative that you know they, they wanted to paint Greg's time as just well basically shit from from the off start? How how do you yeah, think that played out? There's a lot of clever ed- editing, isn't there? The, there was in the first series as well. I think there's another bit of. I can't remember what episode it's in, but it, oh, sorry, it's it's the deadline day episode. Sorry, yeah, when um, they show BBC Newcastle Total Sport in the studio, but they're mm-hmm. playing the road, but they're playing our our podcast say, from deadline. Larson, yeah, yeah, yeah. We we did a deadline day podcast live on YouTube, and they've made it sound like it was a radio show. It's kind of weird, isn't it? No, yeah. Obviously, to to a casual viewer, to which is basically who this is appealing. Though it's not really for Sun fans; it's for football fans. Um, they wouldn't notice such a minor detail, but as somebody who pays attention to these things, it was a little annoying. But yeah, the I was in the studio that day when Charlie and Stuart came in after the playoffs and it was a very sombre mood. Before the podcast, we all met the day before just to talk about basically what we were going to say because we had to get the tone right with that particular show because everybody was obviously frustrated with what had happened that weekend at Wembley. And we had to make sure we got the tone of the question and right. And I think Graham was right to um, to ask about Greg and the style of play. And yeah. th- these were things when when we done. I mean, obviously those are a thing of the past. We haven't spoke to the owners in a while. 
But when we did, the one thing that I wanted us to make sure we did was to gather as many opinions and feedback and questions from every platform we could to then feed into the show. So whenever anybody listened to one of the interviews with the owners, what they heard was questions that we'd been asked repeatedly by people on social media. We weren't just throwing our own questions forward and we were actually asking things that people were asking us to ask. So we had quite a lot of questions about Greg and the style of play and why he was signed when he clearly didn't fit the way Jack Ross wanted to play. And, you know, very worthwhile questions I felt. And particularly when you watch the documentary and you see how involved Stuart actually was in that whole process, it was really on him that signing there's a piece of footage shows where like see you mentioned it before when he's talking to Jack Ross and Jack Ross is telling him not to not to up the offer because he's not worth it and then you see footage of Jack leaving the training ground for the the night and that was the truth Jack left around seven eight o'clock after they'd signed Sterling I think yeah so yeah that signing was on Stuart and I think although ultimately it's down to the manager to get the players playing in the right system and style it was very much on Stuart that signing and I thought we were, we were totally within our rights to ask about it yeah I'm not, I'm not now that you've brought it up and you've, you've made a good point it, it, the editing does make it seem a little bit petty on our front but I mean I'm not going to not going to pull any hairs on it I think it's um, it's just one of those things but ultimately the, the, the narrative of this particular episode was to show that Greg wasn't a successful signing. Well, as the listeners know um, from Graham's previous podcasts, he is quite highly emotive and I, I think obviously you can see that on his face there. And So yeah, uh, basically the episode itself, like I said, it, it focuses very, very much on the transfer deadline there. That, that itself is, is more or less wrapped up there. Um, interestingly, the episode finishes on Stewart's telling us that he might need a bit of time and it's beginning to dawn on him that he might not be going at the speed that the fans want. Uh, he tells us once again that he's certainly spent more money than he's budgeted for. So cracks are perhaps starting to develop, which will certainly be highlighted in the next episode, episode five. Now, episode five, I'll be honest, I was just thinking, Christ, what am I watching from the offset? Um, it begins with like what I think it, it's a Brexit march rally. Is that right? The appearance of Nigel Farage? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. The, when the, the, they were attempting to walk from Sunderland to the... Houses of Parliament, weren't they? Right. I think well, stay, I think Far- Farage. Yeah, yeah, and then I think Farage only stayed on the walk to to see him, and then <laughs> let everyone else crack on. Um, sounds, about, sounds about right. But yeah, it was it, that again when you're talking about narratives and stuff because Sunderland, a lot of blame and criticism was appropriated to the city of Sunderland over the whole Brexit thing, and um, they've, they've tried they've tried to sort of shoehorn it in, haven't they? Really? Yeah. It's got not it's not got anything to do with. <laughs> With anything really, because even they have the interview with Peter, the taxi driver, but he's like, yeah. he even states, I, I, I don't agree with all this, yes. blah, blah, blah. So yeah. it's a bit like, why is he there? I think they've just tried to show on that footage in, really. Yeah, to try and, um, yeah, try and fit a narrative. But it's, I think, again, you've got to think of the wider viewing public. People outside of Southern probably, oh, Southern, that place where they count the fastest and voted for Brexit. <laughs> um, so yeah, I can sort of understand why they've done it. Absolutely. Well, um, after that's done with, a, again, after the intro titles, we then are joined with Stuart Donald back again. And this is the first time where he's really being quite candid with the finances, very open and honest, saying he doesn't know if he can afford to keep us. If we don't get promoted, the wage bill is too high for League One, that he quotes around £14 million. And he says, if we do go up, we're going up with a wage bill, which is going to be £10 million more than any other team that's gone up from this league. And it would eventually rise to 18 million, which I assume is due to incentives. He then tells us that he would need 10 million pounds more every year to have a go. 
and he believes that we'll need a budget of around twenty million pounds spent well, which Neil Fox says it's not sustainable, not even in the championship. Uh, Stewart mentions that he's had some interesting offers that have come in for the club, and that he's certainly sat on an asset. Now, just off the back of this straight away, whether you are Donald in, whether you're Donald out, do you think this scene will go any way into changing people's opinion on that particular debate? Because one of the questions, or at least one of the arguments that continuously come to the forefront of this entire issue is people save the skin. They've got no money, this, that, and the other. And people are you know, very defendant of that because they've heard in the past that Stuart Donald has said, I've got X, Y, and Z. You know, I've, I needed to show the Football League. I've got so much money. But he would have actually got him on film being very open in his own home saying, I don't have the money. I, I don't potentially have enough to, mm. to, to afford this now. What were your thoughts? My opinion is that Sunderland was a was an opportunity which and Stuart said this himself that Sunderland was an opportunity he just couldn't turn down. He, you know, he won the lottery when he managed to, to get Charlie. I mean, ch- there is a scene early in the series when Charlie talks about how there wasn't a queue of um yeah. Willem buyers because it was in such a mess. And obviously there was there was gonna be a there was gonna be a lot of work going into turning the business around to make it run on an even keel for a short period at least. But Stuart definitely saw an opportunity which was that when you if you if you think back to when they bought the club, Sunderland had only ever been in the third tier once before and they'd won the league. Before that, the season we got relegated under Chris Coleman. Before that, Sunderland had never placed outside the top four in the second division. Yeah. So this is a club historically which has never failed to get promoted quickly out of those leagues. So you can sort of understand the gamble. They'll have looked at it and have went well. You know, we can we can basically buy this club for very little money, and I don't want to go too deep into that because obviously everyone's got their thoughts on how much Absolutely. of their own money went into it and stuff. I'll not go too far into that, but obviously, I don't think they paid an awful lot for it. And the opportunity was that if you can basically come in, cut costs right to the bone, and get the team promoted with a playing squad which is above this level in terms of overall ability very quickly we can then flip the club sell it in the summer and move on with a little bit of cash in our pocket um, the fantastic reputation of having turned a big club around very quickly and got it back promoted into the second tier and off we pop and we do something else with our time it obviously hasn't worked out that way um, but I definitely think that was the mentality because why wouldn't you if you if you were in that position you know? well, absolutely yeah I was, I was going to say it's Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but I think you know if everybody else was offered a similar, similar opportunity, whether you can you know buy into a cheap house, for example, put on a liquor plant and and sell it for three, four times the, the money that it's worth, it's it's something that anybody um, with a business mindset, if you like, would would basically look at. Um, well, if you if you're a football fan, especially, yeah, you know, because as a football fan, what what an opportunity to to do something fantastic, yeah. The scene itself draws to a conclusion with Stuart saying that we need to get an investor or we have to sell. Now, thankfully, the rest of the episode is focused heavily on the Checker Trade Trophy run, uh, beginning with the Newcastle game. So it's cut out pretty much all of the group stages and in pretty much all of the games then. And it reminds us of the derby that wasn't a derby or whatever it was. The Newcastle fans certainly weren't bothered, but they asked for, I think, 10,000 tickets in the end and brought 4,000. <laughs> Again, what an absolute mockery that was. Um, but what I think the episode does incredibly well, at least from my particular opinion, I think it speaks for, for say, mine and your generation, and it tells us 
and everybody else out there that, you know, we were brought up on the 1973 story. And, you know, we're kind of told about how great that was for the city. And it, But now it's kind of also leaning towards telling people we're just desperate to move on and, and win something and yeah. at least create our own story. And I thought that was that was a nice, um, a nice kind of way that was put forward because, you know, people would normally laugh at the, the EFL trophy and just think, well, it's an absolute tin pot joke. And you've got the, the under 21 sides in. But I mean, credit to Jack Ross throughout the course of the run. I know he mixed and changed the side somewhat, but he, he took it seriously and we just seemed to, well, steamroll pretty much everyone we played, at least until the final. So what we see basically is, first and foremost, the Bristol Rovers game, which, I'll be honest, I mean, I was there and I remember bits and bobs from it. It was absolutely lashing down with rain, but I don't remember them having so many chances. Um, I remember, obviously, we took the lead through through Will Grigg. It was a great assist from Max Power and we scored the yeah. second from Lewis Morgan. Um, but it did seem to show that we're under the cosh for an awful lot. Um, but yeah, we then flashed to the ticket office and they tell us that they've had 30,000 registrations for Wembley in 36 hours. What's interesting is there's a scene of people outside of the ticket office and they're all explaining about their you know, desperation to get to Wembley and will they get a ticket um, and what it would mean to them if they do get a ticket. And there's a scene upstairs that Tony Davison's basically telling us how big it is commercially. Charlie says that he went twice with Oxford and we could potentially be on course to earn a million pounds on tickets in the retail. Um, and this is when Chris Waters asks, can we introduce a phase of tickets, perhaps a phase four, whatever you, for non-season card holders who had been at the checker trade games? Now, Charlie just cuts him off immediately and he says, that's a good idea, but I want to get back to my idea and make more money. Now, I think this is where the footage perhaps needs to be aligned, maybe a little bit cleverer, um, for at least for us, because we, we know what's going on. Do you remember the Walsall debacle it seemed that the club had put a message out saying oh yeah I forgot about if, that. if you're yeah. a non-season card holder if you don't have a purchase history to stand any chance of getting a ticket you need to buy a, a ticket for the Walsall game now when I was sat watching this back I paused this and I was sat scratching my head thinking well you couldn't buy the Wembley tickets from the ticket office because it was all done by Ticketmaster so I'm not sure if those people were queuing for the Walsall game because it did add a few thousand extra on the gears but what was interesting was Stuart Donald said came out and he retracted the statement and said, oh, no, it was a mix-up from the ticket office. You do not need to buy a Walsall ticket. If there's any spare tickets for Wembley, you can basically go in and buy them. So I thought, this doesn't show Charlie in the best of light. And it once again kind of contradicts the message that came out of the club. So mm. I'm not sure. Something that other people might eventually, you know, have a look at and attack and, and what have you. But, yeah, again, it's, it's just kind of Charlie saying how much money we need to get out of this run. Yeah. I think I think um, that that whole that whole thing painted them in in a bad light. I remember. Yeah, um, it wasn't great. No, and obviously it, it's another example of them looking at maybe a little bit not cut out. Yeah, I don't know. Well, Some something relatively minor in the grand scheme of things, but I think it was a little bit tin pot, wasn't it? Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't great. And like I said, because of the way that the show's kind of all you know compressed, and maybe if it was fleshed out in the traditional episodes. It just basically seems that it's so quick and it's just give us as much money as we can and and then maybe we'll sell because they're interestingly the next scene after saying they want as much money as they can, it's shown Stuart talking to two potential investors, um, which I think is at the Academy of Light. I'm not sure if anything ever materialized with that, but I, I don't think so. And then flashes forward to uh, Wembley itself. It's well, sorry, to, to the travel at Wembley. It's got the squad traveling by train from Durham and then getting off at King's Cross. 
And I mean, for, for anybody who was perhaps there who experienced that or at least seen it on social media, I mean, by God, it was it was like a hero's welcome into London for their for the team. You've got scenes of fans just, you know, waiting at the entrance, waiting there to kind of cheer them off the train. You've got randomly a lad stood with a crate of cans offering Denver humor beer as if he was just <laughs> going to take it, as if it was normality. And I just thought, you know what, that just kind of sums Sunderland up. Uh, all fans, at least to absolute perfection, that basically we were there just in terms of, Peter mentions this, the taxi driver, he mentions it's not so much about the football at that stage, it's about Sunderland and it really did feel that we were, you know, kind of reinventing ourselves and would come back yeah. again. And although the show footage of Covent Garden, the one thing I was a little bit, um, you know, kind of disappointed by is it didn't really show much at all at Trafalgar Square. And when you think of the, the scenes did it, that did night, it show anything? Did it show not anything? at all. No, I mean, it, it, in episode five, it shows a couple of shots, but there is nothing of Trafalgar Square at the yeah, Czech Republic. And when you think, you know, there was estimates of, I don't know, people were saying anywhere between ten to 20,000 people, you know, kind of in the in the yeah. streets between Covent well, Garden and Trafalgar Square. They missed out on some big footage. Yeah, well, I was stood on Nelson's column that night and as far as the eye could see with Sunderland fans, the streets yeah. were just packed. Um, so, yeah, I found that a little bit strange. Yeah, I mean, it's like I said, good, good footage uh, yeah, missed, really. It's, it's all about the footage, really. Um, and like I said, I think sometimes the way the documentary kind of spun in season one, it showed us a bit of a poor light. Um, I, I think that would have been really good to kind of at least say, look, you know, despite mm. how bad this is, you've got over 40,000, I think it was 44,000 fans in the end that made the journey down to Wembley, perhaps. But yeah, yeah um, it would have been great to show that basically we're still there supporting the club through uh, through thick and thin. Mm. So my my favourite, sorry, my favourite line of the whole show was when um, when they're interviewing the taxi driver in Covent Garden and he yeah. He's, talk, he's talking about the fans and he's, he's, he says they haven't got a pot to piss in, but yeah. And <laughs> that's, he's that's right, literally he? my next note. Yeah. 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 It, I mean, it was fantastic. Well, off subjects, I mean, I'll be honest, I, I went to both of these games. I travelled down with my wife. I stopped overnight for, for two nights the first time. I stopped overnight for one night the second time. And I mean, for the money that you spent, you could easily, easily go on holiday somewhere, seven days, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And, I think sometimes people take that for granted. It's something that we'll we'll discuss perhaps in the next episode when we're you know going to the ticket sales and things like that. But yeah, I mean, when you think of how, how far we had to travel and how much money we had to spend, I think um, I think that they could have maybe perhaps mentioned that a little bit better. But uh, yeah, Peter sums it up absolutely brilliant. So it, it cuts to the day itself. Uh, literally one shot of Wembley Way, which again I found a bit bizarre because some of your best memories of going to Wembley is all about travelling you know, to the ground, being stood outside the ground and the anticipation of, of everything before you go in. Um, footage cuts to inside the ground. You've got, obviously, a, a packed-out Wembley Stadium. You've got Portsmouth waving the flags. Nick Barnes then takes over on the commentary and he says just how big the game is. You know, if we don't win, it could perhaps destabilise us, demotivate us for the rest of the season. Um, of course, we know how it unfolds. We absolutely dominated the first half of the game. Um, we could have easily really been maybe two or three out of sight if we were more clinical. Aidan McGeady gives us the lead with uh, with an excellent free kick. And you think at that point that perhaps we are on um, on course to, to eventually win something. Cuts to cameras inside. Charlie Methven saying, pretty much as I mentioned, we've bossed the game, but he would be very interested to see how Kenny Jackal would respond to that, how his, how his Portsmouth players would come out in the second half. And again, obviously without going too much into the game itself, 
it really was a complete contrast, wasn't it? Portsmouth came out and, just, I mean, we mm. just got deeper and deeper. And what the footage really interestingly shows is it's just how frustrated that Charlie Methvin is becoming whilst watching this. He's, um, you know, he's kind of ranting and raving. The shots of Stuart Donald saying that Will Griggs isolated by himself. Charlie's screaming, wake up, and how, you know, we've got to make a change. Um, his partner's telling him to calm down, which I always thought was quite funny. Um, I mean, we've, we've all been there where we've all got animated and perhaps had somebody to, uh, to tell us to try and rein it in a little bit. But uh, yeah, it, it was evident just how perhaps pissed off that they them two were. I think equally as much as the fans, but I think as, as I kind of recap my memories back on that game, I think it was more nerves than anything else. I, I remember a vast portion of the game, but it, it just kind of got worse and worse and we just set, seemed to drop deeper and deeper. Uh, I think it does kind of, display that quite well we, we didn't seem really wanting to compete an awful lot in that second half especially with the substitutions when when max power comes on it looks like we're happy to sit on that one goal lead so in terms yeah. of obviously it does show um stewart you know kind of kicking off when the equalizer comes in because we've changed the team now can we go ahead and chase the uh chase obviously for the winner we'll go two one down it's charlie methan doing what charlie methan does best um ranting and raving so we get the equaliser. Um, obviously, we know how it all unfolds, but fair for anybody who hadn't watched it, um, it's pretty much kind of TV gold, if you think. You've got us scoring in the last minute of Wembley, um, you know, with all the momentum going into the penalty shootout. You've got Charlie Methvin running down the stairs, next to Ellis Shaw, going absolutely wild. And then, just on, Sorry, just on that, um, that really stood out to me, Ellis Shaw sitting there. I didn't realise he was... Shaw. Yeah, I didn't realise he was sat with Methvin at the game. Yeah, um, I knew he was a guest, but I didn't know how, to what kind of capacity he was in until I watched, obviously, this back. I'm one of those kind of sad people. I've got this game saved on my Sky Plus. Um, and I definitely couldn't, I couldn't have watched it back. I, I didn't <laughs> want to watch it back. I never, ever wanted to watch it back. Um, and the same, obviously, for the playoff game. But sadly, as per um, reviewing these, these episodes for this podcast, I've now watched it back like three or four times. And it's, Christ, it's, it's, it doesn't get any easier. So we'll go back through the penalty shootout. Um, and of all the people, you do not want to miss a penalty. Lee Catamull, um, unfortunately, second one to step up. I know this is not kind of displayed as such in the documentary, but do you think it would have been interesting for somebody to maybe question why Charlie White or George Honeyman, maybe a more attacking player, didn't go up and um, take a penalty? Yeah, well, that's what that's what all the fans were saying afterwards, yeah. weren't they? Yeah. Your striker or your captain should be taking a penalty. I don't blame Catamull at all for that. I mean, no. I know... People remember Mickey Gray missing one against um, Charlton because it was a crap penalty. But when you think about it, Catamol, in terms of just a, a penalty shootout, Catamol's was probably worse because everyone else scored and it was it was the only missed kick, wasn't it? So yeah, um, but I don't think anybody maybe because it's the Czech Trade Trophy and people probably don't think it had much riding on it, but it definitely felt so at the time. But yeah, Honeyman, def- Honeyman, Honeyman definitely should have took one. I was pissed off with him. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting to see how it all panned out because I was quite low down. I think I was maybe row ten or so like that. What was interesting is is after they'd scored their first, which I think John McLaughlin was was very close to saving. Um, as soon as Lee Catamol took a few yards, um, you know, kind of stepping forward, and you knew he was going off for penalty number two. You just heard like um, a weird sort of oh god type moment in the air. Um, and it felt like people knew that he was going to, you know, have his penalty saved before he'd even actually took it. So, no, you're right. That's one thing I would never, ever have a go at anybody for. I think if you're going to step up and take a penalty in a cup final, no matter how big or small, 
in front of 85,000 people, um, you know, you've got to have some big balls to do that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, absolute credit to him for, for stepping forward. So, yeah, basically scenes at the end, unfortunately, we've been beat. Uh, or agonising wait for a Wembley win carries on. And then basically it cuts to Charlie Methven at full time. He's saying how it's the same every week. We go one goal up and we try and defend the lead. And that's where you see Charlie maybe losing a bit of patience, a bit of faith in Jack Ross, because he then turns around and he says he needs to ask himself and there's some end of staff, basically some difficult questions. Um, he then makes point to say, is this going to impact or shape the rest of our season? Because we've got nine games, which I think was just over four weeks that we had to play that. Um, mm-hmm. Would we then look back at this and think, so what, that we've lost, a, um, you know, kind of a meaningless game, if you like, but we've still got promoters. So I, I think in the end, yeah, if perhaps we've got promoters, we wouldn't be, well, we wouldn't be as bothered as we are now. Um, so yeah, episode five draws to, to a close there. Like I said, it is quite a short one because if you think this cup run, it went or at least ran um, in parallel to, to pretty much all of the season throughout the course of the group stage and things like that. Maybe it could have documented it a little bit better in terms of how fans were getting down to Wembley and, and obviously their experiences, but it did seem quite rushed. Um, and as does episode six, which we'll move on to now, this is the final episode in season two. Um, and like I said, we've discussed many times now how the previous pod, well, sorry, we discussed in the previous pod, I should say that, you know, things could have been maybe fleshed out a little because one of the things that I was really looking forward to seeing uh, one of the final moments of the season was that last-minute winner against Rochdale away from home. One week after we've just lost the checker trays, final, you think. Mm. At that point, you know, we are really all guns blazing. And George Honeyman scores the winner at full, uh, just before full-time. Two games in hand, I think, that we had at that point with two home games to follow. And everybody at that stage is basically suggesting that we are going to be right, well, right amongst it in the top two. Um, I remember seeing a tweet at the time um, which has sincerely backfired. And it basically, it was one of these kind of Twitter takeovers where Charlie White was answering questions that would have been in the uh, home program for the next game. And it was basically ask Charlie White whatever you want. And one of the questions that went in was um, can you ask Charlie how many? how many tickets are Portsmouth and Charlton going to be equally allocated to Wembley? I thought, Christ almighty, that's going to backfire on us big style. Um, so it was a shame that that was missing because, like I said, it was it was a great moment. Um, fans pouring on the pitch. Um, I mean, even even Mickey Love from Wise Men's here, he was, he was on the pitch high-fiving everybody and he's like 10 foot tall. So, yeah, it would have been great to really see some of that footage. Um, it continues on with uh, the club priest, club chaplain, Father Mark Smith, he's discussing the resurrection of the club. Um, it looks like he's carrying out the Stations of the Cross on Easter weekend. And that religious undertone comes back into us. The first game that we do see is the Coventry game. And, I mean, Jesus Christ, this was uh, this was one of the most entertaining ones, certainly for a neutral. So the footage we see, it just begins at half-time. Um, so we've missed, obviously, the first six goals. And Stuart and Charlie are talking about how we were just ripped apart time and time again. Um you know, they're, they're obviously pissed off as equally as we all were in the ground at the time. And they said it would be interesting to see how we respond when we came out. And we didn't uh, at all. We obviously fell behind again, 4-3. We get back into it through a deflected goal. And then obviously it shows the incident where Baldwin and Flanagan are at um, sixes and sevens with one another and, and basically cost us for the fifth goal. Now, there is an incident that I don't think many people are aware of that we'll discuss now. Um, this was brought to our attention months and months and months ago after it actually happened. 
So Tom Flanagan actually tells us about an incident where he is out shopping in Tesco with his wife and his newborn baby. And he's basically approached by uh, a man and his wife. And they basically have well, a verbal tirade against him. And they tell him that he was absolutely shite against Coventry. And you can maybe see that Tom Flanagan's emotions. Like he was, he was well, he was obviously very, very upset about this. I mean, the incident itself, it, it's not acceptable in any capacity, is it? No, no. That's the one. When I've wrote about this, I've said it shines Southern fans in a good light. This is the part of the series that doesn't, where mm-hmm. you may be seeing the dark side of the fan base. And I know it's easy to say, an easy excuse to say, well, every fan base has its idiots, but we have to condemn yeah. Any anything like that really I mean it's not acceptable. And what I was told at the time, and I don't know whether I don't think it's actually mentioned in the series, so I don't know how true it was, but I was told that Flanagan had his trolley tipped. But yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, that, think, that isn't mentioned at all in the series. It's just he's, he just talks about being approached and what was said to him and stuff. So maybe it was blown out of proportion when I was told about it, but um it's not acceptable. And I mean it happened again early this season, didn't it? Somebody Slagging him off for his haircut and he hadn't yeah. even played. People like that need to be called out. If you hear anybody doing that at the games, then they should be called out for it because it's it's not on. It reflects on us badly as fans. I think we, you know, when, when the best the best side of the fan base is showcased in the series, but then you've got that, and that's the worst side of it. In in terms of this kind of generation that we're in now, you know, it seems like everybody's got the phones out for absolutely everything in terms of video and every bit that they see of a player and trying to get, you know, photos, this, that and the other. So you can kind of understand where players really don't want that interaction. And that really would be a shame because we've spoke already in the previous podcast about how when these players came in, you know, there's quite a good feel-good factor about the place. Um, You know, everyone seemed to buy into this culture that this is like a Sunderland 2.0, if you like. This is kind of like a rebirth and everybody's on the same page. So it is really sad to hear just how sour that incident could be because, for all Tom Flanagan, you know, yeah, just like every every single one of our players, the league one standard footballers, they are going to have incidents where, unfortunately, maybe they're not going to be as good as perhaps we've we've had in the past. You know, we've we've been subject to say Premier League football for so long, perhaps it hasn't, you know, kind of sunk in so much. Uh, well, I hope it would by now that you know we are League One. The standard of footballers aren't obviously as good as that we've previously had. But if you see a footballer out there, the amount of times you hear about people approaching say Luke 9 and they've got lovely photos with the children and things like that don't be that dickhead who kind of robs that of everybody else um, they're all human just like everybody and look we've all shouted and screamed it's you know but if that's from 30 rows back and providing it's not malicious and providing it's not abusive you know within reason but for god's sakes don't approach anybody in a bloody shop especially with the wife and a newborn baby that's that's not acceptable mm. so that narrative kind of carries over a little bit anyway about you know, kind of the pressures and and obviously how that game has is kind of say influenced the rest of the season because we see Jack Baldwin again. Baldwin, as we mentioned in previous episodes, he he doesn't really look like he, you know, has the muster to play for Sunderland Football Club. He, he accepts that he was dropped after the game for good reason. He says if he demanded to go and play, if he knocked on Jack Ross's door and then he made a, a mistake afterwards, he couldn't live with himself. So it did seem to kind of mark the end of his time. I know he still has a few months left on his contract and whether we would look to renew that after he comes back, um, I honestly can't see that. His no. partner then discusses, um, again, obviously the sudden side of football about you know depression and, and obviously mental health issues um, that all of the footballers go through. So just kind of 
uh, retouching on that comment before. Like I said, they're all human. Um, and the difference is now is that these players are perhaps, I suppose, more within reach of, say, your Premier League footballers who live um, you know, in these gated communities and stuff like that. These footballers now don't have all of that massive money. So the likelihood is, is you're more, you do have more of a chance to brush shoulders with them, whether you're walking through the bridges or Tesco or Morrison. So, yeah, um, like you said, you can you can see that perhaps the uh, the issues are beginning to creep in. The next game that we see is game God knows how many of Portsmouth um, that we've played for them. It's uh, it's the one one game where it basically ends with players clashing at the end. We've got footage of the flare or the smoke bomb dropping from obviously their fans up above in the the north stand, and it really does kind of re-emphasise just how much of a bad blood there is uh, between the football clubs. We then move on to the Fleetwood game. So there is a couple of games deleted from there. I mean, again, if you think of fleshing it out, that Peterborough game, the last five minutes where power takes the lead and you're convinced again that we're going open at least in the automatic spots and then obviously the late equaliser. I think that would have been interesting for a lot of people to watch the emotions that we all went through. So it's yeah. straight to the Fleetwood game. We've got two ladies who, God love them, look like they've been following Sunderland for 60 to 70 years and they're telling us that it's just not good enough had too many draws. Um, it cuts to footage inside. We see Lee Catamore give us the lead and then we basically see us, of course, fall apart and get beat 2-1. Now, this was interesting because I was down at Fleetwood that night and perhaps I just missed all of this, but the fans had come out at full time. It's the first time where I seen, at least in a timeline, if you like, that where people were unhappy with Jack Ross. Uh, people yeah. have come out and they were, they were really kicking off, shouting, it's not good enough, get this on camera. There's one bloke who's saying, get rid of him. Um, his team are a bunch of bottling bastards and you just think at that stage the writing might be on the wall a little bit um, so they they document that as the end of our season there um, we know obviously that we had the South End game which was a bit of a dead rubber it only really um, depended on whether we would play perhaps Portsmouth at home or Portsmouth away um, so it cuts to Tony Davis and back at Black Cat's house he describes this as our lowest league position ever um, he doesn't want Stewart not to be able to walk the street because of any potential grief. He wants fans to remain on side. Now, here's an interesting one. We've got Charlie and Oscar discussing the ticket sales. And Charlie, as we know, was unhappy um, thinking that the sales were low for this particular game for the playoff first leg. He says he's damned if he does. He's, he's damned if he doesn't point it out. And they, they then decide to call um, Stewart interaction to say that it's best to come from him a message that we, we need to kind of up the attendance. Um, how do you think that's all played out? Because I remember at the time we were getting a couple of DMs from the club, as, as were ELS, as were Wiseman, saying, can, can you do anything to increase the, the ticket demand and the ticket drive? You can kind of understand the way the season fell apart, really, in the last few games, how people perhaps didn't have the appetite for us. Well, actually, my if I remember rightly, there was no, there was nothing coming out of the club to nothing. drive ticket sales. Yeah. And it, it took um, me... Gareth from Wise Men Say and, and Martin at Love Supreme, we all got our heads together and we said we need to do something about this because the club just aren't. So we tried we tried getting um basically trying to just like they did for Boxing Day, um we tried to we tried to help drum up a little bit of interest in the game. We we had like um some of the players that we've we've got contact with, we had them record video messages for the fans yeah. and um, we ran stuff on the website encouraging people to buy tickets and we did stuff on podcasts so we we did, we done as much as we could to try and spread the message but I don't I, I think again this is maybe where the narrative doesn't paint the reality quite as mm. it was because I don't think there was any effort at all from the club to push ticket sales it was kind of just I think they kind of um, 
they'd had the wind blown out of sails a yeah. little bit by that point. And the you, when you see how enthusiastic Charlie was about Boxing Day and, and about getting a big crowd in the ground, um, there's nothing of the sort for that playoff game, which was the biggest game of our season and it was our lowest crowd. Um, I think what, what was interesting as well, um, just kind of watching it back, I personally thought it was the best atmosphere of the season at home. It was, it was one of those weird games where you know, a much lower attendance and everyone yeah, it just seemed yeah. a bit more close and knit. Um, I cast mm-hmm. my memory back to that Arsenal FA Cup game um, under Martin O'Neill many, many years ago now. And there was just something electric about us. It was obviously a night game. It was a Saturday night. So it afforded mm-hmm. everyone the opportunity to go out and maybe have a drink beforehand. But I don't know. When I set foot into that ground that night, I was just 100% convinced that we were going to Wembley. And I, to be honest, I never really get those feelings that often, but for, for some reason, it really sunk in that uh, by hook or by crook, we were going to win that game. And it, it was a shame that perhaps many missed out. Um, but yeah, yeah it, it was interesting that they've got that scene where, you know, he's mentioning about the the whole issue of, of nobody really buying into it. But I do recall from previous podcasts that we had with Stuart and Charlie um, that they said that they can only do so much. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there really well, was nothing at all. What the timeline does show is that obviously from from losing at Wembley in the Czech trade final, it was kind of a downward spiral. We we yeah. were bottomed out and results were poor. What what the what the documentary doesn't show at all is just how close to automatic promotion we were, and how we were basically bottled it. We had three or four really good attempts at well, gifted opportunities to break the top two, and we just didn't yeah. take any of them. So going in that Portsmouth game the atmosphere was flat because nobody wanted to be in the playoffs yeah and I think that, that resonated with the owners too I don't think I don't think they were maybe it wasn't the right time to do a PR push I don't know but I mean leading into the game it was we, we were all tracking the ticket numbers via the, the methods that fans have seemed to have cottoned on to I think there's a couple of websites how you can track tickets and stuff yeah it's weird and everybody knew yeah, everybody knew that ticket sales were crap going into mm-hmm. the game, and that's why the fanzines came together to do something about it. So, um, I would, I would say, obviously, um, even from from Portsmouth's point of view, I mean, to be fair, I pretty much like everybody at this stage. I'm I'm not overly keen on Portsmouth from the amount of times we've played with them and the bad experiences that we've had over the past year or so with them. But they didn't even really seem up for it. They didn't travel up in in massive numbers in comparison to the, to the fixture earlier in the, um, earlier in the month, where I, th- I think yeah. they brought maybe close to two and a half, three thousand, and. I mean that league game, the one-one draw that was mentioned. I'm sure the crowd was was there or thereabouts for forty thousand. So it was, it was interesting to see the drop off. Yeah. Um, and it, it is mentioned a few times. I mean Nick Barnes and Benno, they they mentioned it on the commentary. Um, and going into the Portsmouth game, in terms of obviously the way it's presented, I think they do it quite well. They mentioned about Aid McGeady, how he's missed out, and a lot of people weren't perhaps aware because I think he was mentioned that he was going to be starting. Um, with maybe Lewis Morgan on the on the bench, obviously even Linda Gooch, but lo and behold, uh, Linda Gooch walks out uh, in his place. Then Morgan comes onto the bench. Obviously, I have so many chances knocking on the door. Uh, I remember that particular one from Gooch putting the ball in and Honeyman's header, which is superbly saved by uh, McGillivray, who turns that over. And I mean, at that point, you're just waiting, obviously, for us to take the lead. And, and it was it was a great moment from from Chris Maguire's goal. He just seemed to time everything to absolute perfection. You can see him screaming for the ball in the build up, um, but the way he just you know drops back a yard and, and smashes that in, um, it, it's superbly edited the way that they've slowed that yeah. down. So it was it was a nice moment to relive, especially with you know what's uh, what's coming. Then we've got obviously Ali Mozter getting sent off. So you've got there the KG final twenty minutes. 
But thankfully, it, it basically, we know how it all pans out. We win the game. It shows the little exchange at the end where you've got Chris Maguire basically getting in. I think it was Burgess's face. And obviously, he ran the game, didn't he? Didn't he yeah. require that day? Yeah, he was. Yeah. He was incredible. I mean, right at the end, there, there's that particular moment where they, they stood on the halfway line, and he just lashes the ball out for a Portsmouth goal kick just before the full time whistle. But I remember, I think there was a period of about a minute where they just could not get anywhere near him to kick, um, just just trying to kick him and kick the ball away. But yeah, it was like I said, it's sad how it all peters out. But off the back of that night, you, you thought the momentum really was with us. So the the way obviously it all unfolds, it then cuts back to Ian McGeady where he discusses the fact that he's been injured for, for six to seven weeks. We know this in terms of Sunderland fans watching this, but perhaps uh, neutrals don't want that. Basically, he went and broke a bone in his foot when we played Akron and Stanley away and he was playing through through pain injections. And then it cuts to the second leg where basically says McGeady will not be involved um, and we're going to rest him for Wembley. Now, Portsmouth that night itself was, again, an absolutely mental away day. It was red hot from what I remember under the, the corrugated roof. Atmosphere was absolutely brilliant. And to be fair, it was one of the finest, you know, kind of Sunderland defensive performances that you'll you'll really see, at least from last season. John McLaughlin saving everything coming his way. It's nice to see Stewart get quite animated amongst the away fans, you know, not afraid mm. to kind of fuck this, fuck that, screaming about the referee. So it was it was it was good to show that basically, you know, everybody was at least united at that stage. Like I said, it was a bit, sh- bit of a shame the way that they kind of cut notable bits. We mentioned how he, uh, sorry, Chris Maguire even, how he ran the game in the first leg. But one of the most impressive things I thought about that second game was Portsmouth. They were all doing their their VTs on social media. They had all of their players saying they've got to come down to Fortress Fratton. But within the first 10 minutes or so, we really took the sting out of that game. I think Lee Catamall had won the ball back and, you know, he'd drawn a foul and you could just see the tempers were boiling. Then you've got Tom Naylor, I think, who threw the ball at Chris Maguire. There was a good few times where you thought these could be getting booked or at least sent off, but we just did not let the occasion get to us. And I thought the mm. notable thing that was missing, it was the Luke 9 incident where he falls yeah, over yeah. the advertising hoard and he gets kicked by the fan. I thought, you know, that really should have been documented because yeah. it's about time that they paint some other fans in a bad light instead of ours for <laughs> yeah. a change. And and the um the, the footage of obviously I don't know whether it was out of respect or what have you, but Grand Medbitter obviously was man the match that night. It was probably the yeah. best game he's had for Sudden since he came back. And obviously it came to light afterwards that his his mom had passed away. And lovely footage, I think Sky you captured it of him just standing out on the pitch and cut them all coming out to give him a hug and a kiss. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 that would it, it would be nice if they included that, but I don't know whether that was just done out of respect or, or what have you. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, even if it was maybe just that sort of snippet, um, it didn't necessarily need to maybe go into it and explain what had you know what had sadly happened to his mom. But I mean, I remember when that done the rounds on Twitter. I mean, that that just blew up. You had fans from from every yeah. single club. A lot of people have this perception of Lee Catmull as maybe a bit of a a bad lad, um, you know, who really doesn't display that level of you know, sort of compassion, but I mean, it was it was an incredible moment, and especially when you think these are two lads who played on the opposite sides, and they've got that famous moment at the Riverside, maybe 12, 13 years prior, where they're determined to get stuck into each other when we played each other in the Premier League. So it was it was really really nice to see. But I think Grand Leicester is a bit of a notable omission throughout the entire program, isn't he? I was mean, oh, sorry, yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, it, it, it would be nice to hear something from him about why he came back, but then he's yeah. not the most outgoing person is he so no he's not maybe maybe he just didn't want to be involved I think that 
that's pretty apparent throughout all of this, really. There's not much footage of the actual players, which might seem strange, but you do just get the impression they weren't interested in being involved, a lot of them, maybe other than no nine. I mean, for, for obviously for the record, for, for people listening, we badger an awful lot of people all the time, hence the reason why we're quite successful in getting player interviews and player podcasts and stuff like that. Jack Ross is a person who I've been pretty desperate to get on the podcast for a while. It's not going to materialise, unfortunately, whilst he is um, obviously managing another football club. But in terms of one of the channels of communication that we've had, I asked him prior to Christmas, you know, how was basically this this kind of presence around you all the time and it was something that he wasn't overly keen about he didn't want people basically filming every training session he said it was quite uncomfortable to have people filming them in the car and I think that is perhaps a pressure that people you know maybe overlook if they didn't have this distraction I'm not necessarily going to suggest it's it could afford us um, an extra couple of points on the board where we would have got promoted but you're right in that respect I suppose if you've got cameras following you around all the time you might be a little bit hesitant about, you know, being yourself and displaying what you can really do without the worry of it being, you know, kind of distorted or, or edited very cleverly. Because as we've discussed, the the football club had no editorial control. Um, and as, as great as I think Jack Ross comes across, like I said, I know for an absolute certainty that he uh, he really, really was not keen on it. But again, that's drawn back to the season before. Um, neither was Chris Coleman, neither was Kit Simons. In fact, I think when they'd signed their contracts, it was only then that they were made aware that they were going to have all of these cameras around them. So there is a bit of, um, you know, kind of lesser scenes in terms of player interaction. I know it followed Johnny Williams rounds uh, pretty much nonstop season one, but you're right. You, the likes of Ledbetter and Catamore, I, I think that they've just, they've got to the end of their tether perhaps because we'll barely see anybody, even even George Honeyman, who's club captain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like itself, um, should I say, the, the Portsmouth game obviously finishes on the high note. So that's, that's basically took us back to Wembley for, Christ, I think the second time in around about six or seven weeks. So all of that hard work begins once again in terms of fans going back through the rigmarole of getting tickets and basically thrashing out plans of getting to Wembley and how much it's going to cost them. And basically it's uh, it's it's all guns ablaze. And then what was interesting was just how quick this has turned around. It basically shows us a Portsmouth and then it fell to me within a couple of minutes all of a sudden, you're, you're basically back at Wembley. It shows John Cook, the kit manager. Um, he said that he wanted Charlton again. He said it wasn't about revenge. It wasn't about anything in particular, but he said it was the right thing that would play Charlton. Um, just going off subject, I remember that me and you, we were at the Stadium of Light when Charlton played Doncaster in the second leg um, of the playoff semi-final. And I know for an absolute certainty, we did not want Charlton. We were there with now non-executive director Tom Sloans um, and a lot of his friends from, from Betdak. And everybody was really gunning for, for Doncaster. So I'm not sure why John Cook had that thought about playing Charlton again, because I think we knew that they would certainly give us a certainly give us a game. What, what was your thoughts going into that? I was, yeah, I was dreading it. Um, especially because the Czech trade game was so close. So I think it was only a month between the games, wasn't it? Yeah, it was very Something close. Like that. So I'd only just been down, spent a fortune. It was like forking out another few hundred quid again. Mm-hmm. With the knowledge that Sunderland hadn't won at Wembley since 1973, it's like nobody wanted to be in the playoffs. As great as those um, performances in the semis were, nobody really wanted to be there and I just wasn't confident at all. Um, and I think that that sort of feeling ran throughout the fan base because there wasn't the same, I don't know, like I say, because of the expense of it and stuff, but there wasn't the same hunger from, from the fan base to be there. There yeah. wasn't the same hunger from people to 
you know, make a big weekend of it. I mean, I know I, I stayed the full weekend, but a lot of my friends just went down on the day and stuff, whereas the the time before everybody went for the full weekend and made, like, like say, made, made the most of it. So I just don't know, there wasn't the same feeling about that particular game, was there? And no. Yeah, that sort of resonated in the performance on the day as well, I think. Yeah, so we cut pretty much straight into Wembley. Um, like I said, it's quite a rushed episode, so we see a few shots of Trafalgar Square. We literally only see one of Wembley win. I think that's pretty sad because that's where a lot of the best footage could be recorded. Um, I mean, people drinking, having fun, playing football, really get uh, the spirits. I mean, the tension naturally was high, like you said. It shows the, the early goal, which still to this day, I cannot figure out how on earth it just went so bad for Charlton in that early few minutes. But it's just how they responded to it, um, which obviously it's uh, it was quite unexpected, really, because they they literally rose to the occasion pretty yeah. much effective immediately after that. Sorry, before you you go past the goal, though, I think it captured quite well how everybody felt. Yeah, because I was I was like third row from the front behind the Sunderland goal, so I was other end of the pitch and I could barely see what well, I couldn't. I didn't even know what had happened. Yeah, um, everyone just started celebrating about ten seconds after the ball hit the back of the net. Nobody knew what had happened and they caught that quite well on camera. Nobody seemed to... Um, and, and people watching it might think, oh, they're, they're not really celebrating, but it was because nobody knew what had happened. Well, there was no sort of emotion behind it. It was just a back pass from their player very early in the game, wasn't it? Well, I remember travelling back the next day and we had a car full and we're all, you know, naturally didn't really want to talk about any of the football. But one of my mates made the good point of seeing that day and I still remember now he said, you know, I even feel like we were deprived of a goal celebration. He, he mentioned about um, mm-hmm. the way, obviously, we all went nuts when McGeady, you know, equalised in, in the last seconds of the Czech Trade final. But with that one, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think I was, again, I was quite similar to where I was for the Czech Trade game. And I actually had to ask the bloke next to me, I went, have we actually just took the lead? Does that count? And he went, I don't know. And we only <laughs> basically confirmed it to each other when it flashed up around Wembley saying, goal. And then the players came back the halfway line and I still couldn't make heads or tails of what had happened because it was just, it was that weird. But yeah, for future reference, if, and I hope we certainly do not have to go back to Wembley anytime soon, don't sit in the first 10 to 15 rows or whatever because yeah. you just can't see that much. So it's a scene at halftime. Charlton have equalised at this stage. Max Power's gone off injured. Um, and Tony Davison and Charlie Methvin are having another exchange. They're discussing the performance. Methvin says we, we can't cope. Uh, when we're one goal up, we can't defend a one goal lead for 90 minutes. And he was absolutely right. Um, again, this was something that through, you know, kind of six degrees of separation, I, man- I managed to ask Jack Ross. Um, and Jack Ross was adamant to say that he never set his players up in that particular fashion. They wanted to compete in the game. They wanted to go on and score more goals. Um, but annoyingly, it just looked like they just dropped deeper and deeper and deeper. And it was just sadly a day that we never got going now. Annoyingly, the person who seems to really kind of change the tide in the substitutions is Johnny Williams when he comes on. And you see a couple of our fans mentioning, oh, here he comes. He was injured nonstop when he played for us, kind of implying as we've got nothing to worry about. And then there's, they've got one passage of play where um, he skips past Grand Ledbetter and then it only takes Luke O'Neill to basically wipe him out and get a yellow card to, to get anywhere near him. I mean, it was probably the best I've actually seen him play that afternoon. And if he could have replicated anything like that at Sunderland, who knows? But uh, by God, he didn't He's have never fit enough, was he? <laughs> no. It's, I was going to say, it's, it's sad the way it all unfolded. And when he came on the pitch, 
it was interesting. You heard boos from from our end. You heard kind of mixed applause. People were like, oh, God, him. Um, mm-hmm. But he's one of those players where I won't really have too much of a lasting memory. I know for many a times where we've had discussions and group chats and stuff like that, and you go through all these championship players and you just forget that basically these have all subsequently come and gone. But the annoyance is, is that they've gone into another club like Charlton here and, um, and lo and behold, obviously, added something at our expense. So it goes back to, um, to obviously, to to the incident itself very much slowed down so it really does does add to the drama where it shows Charlton uh, score in the in the dying seconds Patrick Bauer getting on the end of a deep cross heading it off of Tom Flanagan and he, he sticks his leg out and lo and behold game over with seconds remaining we've lost the final we've been beat at Wembley again and you've got you know kind of devastated fans you've got Stewart and Charlie looking absolutely wiped out it then cuts to, you know, kind of one of the sad moments in the episode. You've got Andrew again, who's been a regular throughout. Him and his son's having a moment. Um, he's, he's hugging his son. He's telling him that we've been here before. We're son until we die. And that basically, we've got to applaud them off. Now, I'll be honest with you. That was one day where, following Sunland, between us both, we've seen them beat, being beat five, six, seven, you know, by eight goals here and there. Mm. But I've never seen so many people actually so devastated I mean, this is about a League One game as well, but, you know, I appreciate the grand scheme of things. It's a playoff final, but this was the first time where I've turned around and I've seen grown men, like, literally in tears. I'll openly admit, I, I first time I've ever, I've ever cried in a football game. I, I think it was the way it all unfolded, and perhaps because I also it's, had a bottle of gin prior to going in. It's like a beautiful tragedy, isn't it? You, 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 could, yeah. you, could, you could see it coming. Yeah. And it all unfolded as, as we all predicted you know, deep deep in our hearts, I guess. If it, I, I, I say going in the game, I wasn't confident. Something you, you couldn't write half the stuff that happens to us, but then no. you have instances like this where it's like, you, you just knew it was going to happen. <laughs> and when I left the ground, I didn't, I just felt a little bit numb and sort yeah. of, it washed over me. I didn't, it, I didn't feel, I know you're saying you felt devastated. It just washed over me. I just couldn't get out of the ground quick enough. Yeah. It was one of those moments where it was just like, oh, there we go, another another disappointing day following Sunderland. I wasn't I wasn't emotional at all. I just felt a little bit numb and mm-hmm. kind of not bothered, which was strange. I think I don't, know whether, it, I just, I, I don't know whether I just became too accustomed to disappointment. Yeah, I was going to say. Oh, but. I think so. Um but I think what's what's maybe something that's that's missing from from obviously these these two episodes back to back with going to Wembley twice is I'm one of those people where I mentioned that Wembley's kind of sold its soul a little bit. You get off the, the train now and you can't see the arch as much because they've got apartments, you know, littered down the sides. They've got big supermarkets and shopping centres and stuff like that. But I think one thing that they've, they've done well, and, and and this is how I personally feel, I always give that grand speech. I go, oh, Wembley means absolutely nothing, but you get in and, and all of a sudden you get that feeling again that you're, you're at the home of obviously of English football and, and just what a massive grand scale it is. And, and when you look round, especially in that first game where, you know, there was more moments of obviously celebration because of the goals and you can see in excess of 40,000 other Sunderland fans, it, it really does highlight that it is a proper moment to to treasure, really. And, it, and what's sad is, is when it obviously finishes with some of the Wembley footage, it shows the lady asking a, uh, a partner or a husband perhaps, why does it always happen to us? Why can we never win here? And then cuts outside to another lady crying outside of the grounds. 
Stuart Donald then does a voiceover, uh, basically saying that you know our fans are basically special. We're, we've come down here and we, we don't deserve to keep losing at Wembley. So I think I think it documented quite well it just how much obviously it would have meant in, in terms of well our comeback really. Um, another bit of footage then shows a fan approaching Stuart Donald outside of Wembley. Now this this is quite different to the Chris Coleman scene, if you like, outside the Stadium of Light. Um, it's no abuse or anything like that. And he basically goes up to Stuart and he just tells me he just wants a bit of hope. And he tells yeah, him... I'm, I know the lad who it was and I, <laughs> I messaged him after I read it, after I'd seen it. And I told him I'd seen him and said, oh, you're on the last episode of Something That I Die Too, grabbing <laughs> Donald after Wembley. He went, I was canny pissed. Does it come across? <laughs> yeah, I would say so. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's a moment where, you know, I think Sunderland fans will look at. And I don't know, when I, when I watched it, I thought, Christ almighty, it just hit me in, in every feel here. Other fans yeah. will look at that from other clubs and they'll, they'll, they'll maybe ridicule it and we all get the cry on Netflix sort of routine whenever anybody plays us. But I, I don't know. It's It's... It's a bit of a, a strange moment because he, he goes up to him literally at our lowest ebb. We've we've finished in League One in fifth position. We've never ever been as low. We've just been beaten the playoff final. And he goes over and he and he asks, Will we ever get there? Stuart in his response, he says, I think we will. Doesn't feel like that now. No. Um, but it comes across, I think, quite well. It's it's obviously shown that Stuart is 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 well he's pissed off he's he's obviously upset yeah. but it's well, it's a it, difficult moment there's a moment in the game where the pressure's on and we're, <clears throat> we're obviously not dealing with Charlton very well and Charlie loses his head again in the in the box and his partner tells him to calm down and he says but there's so much riding on this yeah and there really was because like i said before I, my belief is that they bought the club with the intention to sell it very quickly mm-hmm. and they knew that, that that was the the big chance to yeah. to get the club back to the championship, and as they could see the opportunity slipping away, the frustration started to show. And I think when you see Stuart after the game, he's just like completely numb, stressed, you know, tired from the whole experience. It's kind of all his emotion just pours pours out, doesn't it? I, th- I think that's where is... he's numb. Yeah, that, that is probably the best description, I think, of, of how you could sum a Wembley experience it up. It's it's exhausting because mm-hmm. you've got all of those pre-match nerves. You walk up Wembley way, which no matter how many times you do it, you, you still treasure it. You get a couple of days on the drink as well. Yeah. <laughs> you see, you see, I was going to say... You sober up very quickly, don't you? You, you sober do. up very quickly yeah. when you're in the ground. You see your friends, you see your family, you see people maybe that you went to school with 10, 15 years ago, and you're all there for the same reason. And it is such a special occasion. And, you know, by the time it's all said and done, you're absolutely knackered. And to think that that is the final point of the season, Jack Ross um, then comes on screen and he says he feels that it's not, you know, kind of really fair on the amount of effort that the players have put in. I think it's also not fair on you know the amount of effort that the fans put in. It it's quite a sad, sad ending. And and like you said, really, it's it's a tragedy of sorts because I think by design this the entire documentary from from season one was was always supposed to be a love letter back to the fans that we've got Sunderland basically crashing out in the Premier League and then obviously we've crashed in League One and 
but we we always remained with the club. The fan base remains, you know, loyal and consistent. We took nine thousand fans to Blackpool or whatever year. We packed out every away ground. But the novelty now, at full time, of getting beaten in the playoff final and the novelty of League One is it, it's gone. And we we know that certainly transcended over to this season. Uh, the documentary itself picks up a few days later. So John Cook's back at the academy of light now. And he tells us he's never been so confident of winning a game. He's still in shock. Uh, Joyce, who, as we know from season one, is the club chef. We haven't mentioned her an awful lot because, in truth, she doesn't appear too much. Um, she's, she's a club mom. Never mind the club. Chef. Yeah, I was going to say she's That's the lovely. impression you get. If I don't, yeah, yeah you just she, get your, she loves she loves them like they're our kids. Yeah, but, uh, well, yeah. She, she, it, I, I found it interesting that she said she never she'd never been to a game for like twenty odd years until yeah. the Czech trade final. Well, because she couldn't bear to watch them. (laughs) Yeah. So so the notes I've actually got on this is that she's worked for the club for 21 years, as it's mentioned. The Wembley game was was basically her second ever time of of watching the club. I think from what you see in season one, um, I think she travels with the team perhaps and maybe she cooks for them on the bus. Hence the reason why maybe she can't always go into the ground. But one of the things she said is she's seen so many players come and go, but it's the first time that she's ever seen uh, some of the players cry. She's never seen that side of them before and she was she was devastated equally herself. Patrick comes on as well, notable character from season one, and he basically says that it's going to set them in good stead maybe for the next season. The final scene, um, like I said, it is quite raced through. The final scene has Charlie Metterman stating that in the period of 12 months, the club has gone from losing £20 million a year to breaking even. But he tells us that we simply cannot spend third season in League One. Um, it's not acceptable. Not only do we have to win the league, we have to win it in comfortable fashion. We then see Stewart saying things that we could have perhaps done it better. We certainly don't want the following season to be anywhere as bad as this. And then it's it's just a bit of a roundup of um, of some of the characters, really. You see back in Peter's taxi, he tells us apart from his family that Sunderland are basically his number one love in his life. Um, you also see Andrew Camus mentioned that as well, that the, the whole city revolves around football and that it's our number one uh, our number one hobby, our number one interest. And then finally, cutting back to Peter, who turns around and says he doesn't want to be anywhere near an underground station or, or anywhere near Wembley Stadium for the forthcoming season that we're currently in. And uh, that's where it wraps up with the title card. And for the final time, uh, you hear Shipyards play out by Martin Longstaff. Um, so I, I guess basically at this stage, my take on it is, and I've watched it three or four times now, it really does not get any easier in terms of how, how it all panned out. So much kind of, you know, kind of initial success in terms of the start of the season with Josh Madger and everything clicking well. What's your overall thoughts in terms of how it captured it? I think what it did do was capture just how much of a missed opportunity last season was. As we've covered in this show, the way that we dealt with the, the Madger and Griggs situation, the way that we tossed away promotion the way that we didn't really capture the, the mood of the fans on the day when um, when we, we lost the Czech trade final because the supporters, I can see, I mean, it's great footage of them meeting up on uh, at King's Cross with the players and stuff. And I mean, what a story that could have been with the whole Trafalgar thing the night before and stuff. And it was just such a missed opportunity last season. We, we didn't help ourselves. We shot ourselves in the foot multiple times. And yeah, it I think obviously no one before you watch it, what happened, it doesn't make it any easier at all because you have to relive it all. I mean, the, on my first watch around, watching just how brilliant Josh Madger was again was really painful. 
I struggled with that because I really had kind of forgot how good the goals were that he'd scored, yeah. and it, it just makes you think, God, why did we not keep him? You know, has your, has why your impressions changed on anyone in particular that maybe you thought had you had you gone into to watching this program, for example, and thought you know you weren't keen on somebody, but afterwards you've watched it back and thought you know you've just had a complete one eighty there. I wouldn't say so. No, I, I mean the main characters of the show really are, are Charlie Stewart and the, the the couple of supporters who feature quite heavily, um, and Josh Madger. Sorry, um, I think I, I think I would have had probably more time for Madger had he been a bit more honest in front of the cameras but then he's a young yeah. lad and he didn't want to throw himself under the bus and I can understand why he didn't open up I mean we've already spoke that the players seem to shy away from the cameras so I'm not really shocked that Madger wasn't prepared to sit there and talk about his future with the, the Netflix team because yeah. I just get the impression that the, the team had, the, the players themselves had maybe decided that as a team they weren't going to they weren't going to play ball Yeah, Charlie and Stuart come across exactly as I expected them to because I've got to know them a little bit Charlie comes across as Charlie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Louise Wanless says it best, really. You know, Charlie is Charlie, you know. He, um, I think he comes across as very well intentioned. And uh, I do admire his ferocity and how he just wants to up the standards. And I think, particularly early in the season, he, he sets a series of milestones and meets them all and surpasses them in some cases. But what you don't see from him is. That sort of on the nail, getting the staff together, gearing people towards a successful season is all in the first part of the season. It, you don't see that from him in the second part. And yeah. I think he can't, I think even he'd lost his hunger a little bit. Yeah, I, th- I think that in terms of, you know, he's no longer obviously a member of the board and yeah. it's been mentioned fair for so many different reasons. But I, I think that it is captured incredibly well. Um, the first is first it? few episodes of this, you know, the way they're celebrating and they're, they're always yeah. up in the area. But the the rest of the season is pretty much shot in Donald's house or bridal insurance offices. So I think you're yeah. right that it, it, it captures maybe that their interest had certainly waned at that point. I think I think another interesting note to take from it is: Do you ever see Charlie in a room with Richard Hill with Neil Fox? No, I don't, I don't think, think you do actually. No, not no. once. I think there was definitely there was definitely, and that that's probably why Tony and Charlie left the club. Um, but they were definitely pulling in different directions when it yeah. came to the came to the running of the club. Charlie is very progressive thinking. He wants he wants the club to be on the front foot. Whereas you kind of got the impression that Stuart also had other people in his ear telling them a different way to do it. A little bit more old school, a little bit more old fashioned, lower league sort of values. Yeah. I mean, Neil Fox, Richard Hill, they all, they, you don't meet Paul Reed in this, but they all came from Eastleigh with him. So he, he leaned on their advice. Whereas when you look at what Charlie was trying to do with the business side of things, he's he's trying to push it forward. And I don't know, I don't get that feeling with them. They, they, they just seem a little bit old fashioned. There's no sort of, I mean, I would love to have seen more about the recruitment side of things and because I'm not convinced that the club used anything other than instinct when buying players it would have been nice to see if that was true or not because even some sort of insight in analytics and data and how we were looking at players I mean you even saw that in the first episode uh, first series when Martin Bain meets with the head of recruitment and although it's a little bit far-fetched you do see some example of some sort of data analysis and I don't know. I just think it would have been nice to see how they operate. And but yeah, 
I think it was interesting to note that you don't see you don't see the two groups mesh at all on camera. And I wonder if that was the case off camera as well, where where you had like Charlie and Tony Davidson, and then you obviously had Stuart and his and his Eastley cronies, you know. So a lot to, to digest, certainly for for the people who are about to watch it. So I suppose before we do wrap things up, we'll have to extend our thanks once again to Fullwell seventy three for providing us with an advanced copy. I say thank them. Um, should probably <laughs> hate them, and <laughs> that they basically made us relive a lot of heartbreak especially over the last two or three episodes but uh, nevertheless thank you very much i know that the expectancy is is that at the moment there are no plans for season three by the time fo- the football season resumes if it resumes who knows um i suppose the stance on that may change but yeah i think that's about enough for us so thank you very much for everybody for listening to this spoiler special hopefully it does keep you entertained during this period of lockdown and Hopefully we can all get back to the stadium light as soon as possible. We do have a few more pods lined up whilst we are in isolation. So to stay up to date with all of them, please do remember to subscribe on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify and YouTube. A um, couple of season reviews, I think, coming out. Gav, some quizzes. Um, we do have a yeah, yeah. special interview lined we've got, up We've well. got plenty lined up. Yeah, Absolutely. we've got plenty lined up. We've got right. some ex-player interviews and journalists and stuff. So yeah, we're trying Shall to keep we? things tied over. Right. So in the coming weeks, well, any time really, once we've tidied the audio up, we were delighted to have the opportunity to speak with Jodie Craddock, formerly of Sunderland from 1997 to 2003. Jodie spoke candidly about his time with the club. So yeah, we'll, we'll hope to get that out as soon as possible. We've also got Guy Mowbray as well, who commentated on Sunderland Games for Metro Radio. He was kind enough to to lend us some of his time as well. So yeah, lots to look forward to. And like I said, hopefully we can get through them and and I'll get back to the stadium light doing what we do best and mourning about Sunderland, but not flipping over people's shopping trolleys. Stay away from Tom <laughs> Flanagan and Tesco. So, Gav, thank you as always. Uh, no problem, mate. Big thank you to Tom White for joining me earlier in the day as well um, on his dinner break at Sky. That is commitment beyond belief. And yeah, thank you as always for listening. Um, Sunderland Till I Die Season 2 is out. Enjoy it. Uh, come back and listen to us afterwards. Let us know what you think. And by all means, just remember to stay tuned. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.